Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. I'm excited because now we are in the the EP stage, the seven inch, the we just paid five hundred dollars to record a seven inch phase of Hoosier Illusions young lifespan. Indeed. Which which means now some people who've been hip to us from the beginning can start not liking us because they like the first season better. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to a few seasons from now when we sell out whether that's artistically, commercially, or, or some combination. Or as, as Jason Newstead once put it, every night, everywhere we play. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> every seat in the house. I, I'm looking forward to, in a season or two, you deciding that this just isn't working anymore and replacing me, and then me coming back for a reunion and then people can debate about whether or not the original lineup was the best. Oh, that's, I mean, and you know what? Pre-planning that is pretty spectacular. I'm although with, with selling out, I'm reminded of a meme that I posted on Instagram a while back that says nineties band. We got picked up by a major label nineties fans. Fuck you. Sell out uh, tens band. This cover of a song from Moana is sponsored by Flamin' Hot Werther's Originals. Tens fans. Honestly iconic. We stand sponsored kings. Let's get this to 10 million views. I almost feel like I'm making money. The last line is my favorite. Yeah, it's it's a different world. It is a different world. And it's weird feeling like I helped make it this way. Um, yeah, oh gosh, on many levels about many things. Yeah. Yep. We got a Jim, we got, we got a vegan running for president, yo. <laughs> and he's maybe the least obnoxious vegan in America. <laughs> All yeah. about context. What are we doing here in season 2 besides being obviously slightly more polished and and focused than in our early rumblings uh when you know we were defined by our lo-fi uh tinniness and and throbbing bass and angry aggressive yelping yes yeah. I, I think that the the demo era was just was more raw everything's going to be more refined still primitive in a way uh still uh i would say it, it's truly going to be sophomoric it's going to be us thinking yeah. that it's way more sophisticated than it actually is well you know you know what they say you have your whole career to do your first season and six months to do the follow-up so, yeah yes will this be will this be our recovering the satellites 
I I believe it will. Uh, I believe it will. And uh, the sophomore slump defying. Yes, and we are talking about the Counting Crows. Suck it. <laughs> yeah, I I stand Counting Crows. Yeah, she stand sh- shitty dreadlock kings. <laughs> Purple Pine- camo kings. Uh, originator of the pineapple dreadlock comb over. <laughs> very very creative creative comb over. It's so this is this is proof that we contain multitudes because if you explained <laughs> counting crows to me even <laughs> as a multifaceted middle-aged dude I would loll my way out the room and not give any credence to it. Yet, yeah, it would sound one like of the my worst top thing five all-time bands. It would sound like one of the worst things ever when described. Yeah, and even like you know, you can apply whatever you know Pandora algorithms you want to it. Almost anything you play me that is considered like Counting Crows, I'm not. I would reject out of hand. But for some reason. It's it's that certain something, as the French say. I have to say, also, more so than any band that I can recollect seeing at any point in my life, I was disappointed seeing them live. And this would have, this was probably around their peak. I think they were actually touring that second record. And maybe he outgrew this, but Adam Duritz refused to abide by pre-recorded vocal phrasing for any moment of any song. Yeah, and, he pretty much has not outgrown that. It's it's ugh. like it's in the jam DNA of dudes like that. And the thing is, is I you know part of the live experience. I mean, I don't want a picture perfect, exact replication of the studio recording. But what he does is uh, borderline showing contempt for the audience because it's. I mean, it's it's the vocal phrasing. Like he's changing it every bit of it, and it's like, well, that's. Not only is this like a different interpretation, but it's, it's bad a, karaoke. It's a different song, yeah. And also, your band is playing the backing track as we recognize it. You're just freestyling and scatting away. Yeah, <laughs> and and, it, and it's almost more you're, like just change the lyrics then too. You know, like you're just refusing to let me enjoy this. <laughs> and, and anytime, anytime I notice a band doing something similar in my mind, I think, oh, they're counting crowsing it. <laughs> it's crowsing time. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll revisit counting crows later this season. Yes, but tonight, stay tuned. I to, stay tuned. Tonight, I wanted to talk. Uh, actually, I wanted to interview you, and I wanted to talk about your affinity for this time of year. Yeah. Uh, you're not alone in loving Halloween, but it's something that, uh, like many things we've talked about, you were way into Halloween before it was cool. So I wanted to talk a little bit with you about Misfits, being a Dan fan, how you got into horror and all of that associated stuff and also what that kind of fandom means for us because we're we're basically antithetically opposed to the reality of it but we love the fantasy of it yes so indeed uh well i think those are all fascinating 
areas to explore. And, you know, I was reminded, uh, my, my friend Jen, who's known me uh, even a little bit longer than you have, I, I referred to Halloween as my holiday the other day. And <laughs> I hadn't really felt that or been conscious of that ownership of it in a long time because it is, you know, everyone's favorite holiday now, it seems like. And yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things being an early aficionado, you feel somewhat rewarded and vindicated. Um, but also a little, uh, yeah, you know, it'll be like our season, season two listeners who won't think it's as good as season one. Uh, you know, it's that same sort of feeling of like, yeah, this used to be mine and now it's everyone's and obviously trying to lay claim over an entire holiday like that is uh, much more ridiculous than doing that with like, you know, the integrity demo or something. Yeah. But like everything else that in our culture, Halloween wasn't as big a deal 30 years ago as it is now. Like it really wasn't. It, like the 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 true Halloween fans were the weirdos who also loved slasher movies and all all the other like stuff that was fringe until the late nineties really. Totally. So yeah, well I would say the first place to start with me is my birthday. Uh, my due date rather was October thirty first, and I arrived exactly one week to the date later on November seventh. So somewhere in there. You know, for for our uh, astrologically inclined listeners, you know, there's there's got to be something to that of being born. You Maybe know. you passed through the veil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're buying what I'm selling. I have few pictures from my early childhood, and some of the ones that I have are of my older brother and I on Halloween. Uh, there's one where. I'm dressed up as Batman. I think, you know, I'm three or four years old. There's another where I'm a ghost and it's the very traditional ghost of just, I have a big white sheet with eye holes cut in it with not a, not a pointy head, not a separate hat, just an entire <laughs> sheet. Um, you know, this is Hoosier illusion, but we're not, we're not that Indiana where it came in from there. I mean, I remember being very little and being fascinated by, Batman villains like the Scarecrow, the monster serial mascots I loved as a kid. And, and really, uh, you know, there's there are a couple of things that sort of converged that I think flicked that switch for me. Another was, as we've discussed on the podcast before, a famous Hoosier to those of us who grew up in Indiana, Sammy Terry, who was our local horror host in that horror host tradition of the 50s, 60s, and 70s of local access you know, guys and gals dressed up as these ghoulish characters uh, doing host raps for B-movies, you know, on Friday nights or Saturday nights or whatever. If you've seen the movie Fright Night, uh, then you might know a little bit about what we're talking about as there's a horror host as one of the main characters. But Sammy Terry was our guy in Indiana, and it wasn't so much the films that he showed. I liked the vibe of a lot of those movies, um, and certainly in retrospect, you know, that whole hammer horror thing has been a huge influence on me sort of aesthetically in, in terms of things I, I'm drawn to with art. But it was really the persona and character of Sammy Terry himself. And I think what's interesting about horror from a psychological perspective, as we undoubtedly would get into with Hoosier Illusion, my friend Andy 
explained his fascination with, he's also, he's a fellow Midwesterner, a couple generations behind us. Uh, he explained his horror fascination as he was deathly afraid of all things dark and gory and murderous and supernatural and scary when he was very little and diving into that stuff and embracing it gave him some sort of sense of power over it. Um, and you know, understanding it and, and certainly finding the more cartoonish side to it in his case, whether it was kiss or the misfits or whatever, that all sort of, it, it made him the master of it as opposed to, you know, constantly in, in fear of all those kind of subjects. And I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that for me, certainly. Um, and maybe that's a little bit reductive of an explanation because there's a lot of other things about it that I've loved. And and one thing that's maybe worth exploring or certainly mentioning, I've never been a fan of the torture porn movies or the uh, even some of the really extreme, very sort of visceral, realistic slasher stuff has never been my cup of tea. You know, I liked Friday the 13th movies as a kid, but part of that was Jason as oddly supernatural, unstoppable killing machine. You know, it had this otherworldly sense to it. But I was always a Freddy Krueger guy, and I still am. And that was, you know, my favorite horror film ever. It was the first Elm Street, uh, which I saw when it was released, and I was much too young to have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I should say another really early formative horror experience is my older brother and one of our cousins uh, we used to spend the night over at that aunt and uncle's house quite a bit uh, when i was little and my mom was sick and they would take us to the local video store and let each of us pick out a video and one night my you know older brother grabbed the omen my cousin grabbed the omen too and then they, you know, manipulated me into grabbing the Omen 3. Whereas, you know, I was trying to grab, I, I, I actually, I have a vivid memory that I was trying to grab Buck Rogers um, at the TV movie of the TV show. And I mean, I was like five years old, maybe very young. And I remember my uncle catching on to what was happening and going like, no, 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 let him get the movie that he wants to get. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, my older brother and cousin uh, subjected me to, the Omen 1 and 2, when I was, you know, young elementary age. And I don't want to say scarred because that might be too dramatic, but it def both of those Altered. movies, yeah, it definitely had a profound effect, um, you know, and I was, you know, growing up in a pretty, uh, you know, predominantly Judeo-Christian belief system, you know, Indiana of the late 70s and early 80s. Um, having some familiarity with church, but not being super immersed in it. And I was very drawn to slash terrified of the themes and subject matter to those movies. And I also think that uh, the Omen 2 in particular and, and, and different scenes like, uh, you know, and, and this brings us back to Counting Crows, the scene with the, <laughs> with the crow pecking out the woman's eyes, uh, things, yeah. like, things like that kind of set the stage. And, you know, it's kind of like uh, the first time you heard Slayer, and Lombardo's style of drumming really kind of primed you to eventually hear black metal and blast beats. It was sort of like those seeing scenes like that so young kind of made me desensitized in a way that when 
the eighties slasher boom was really popping off. I could watch a lot of those movies and not really think about the violence that was depicted as anything more than like story device. You know, it was like window dressing right. or like uh, sports or something, you know, like I didn't see it as like in any way analogous to actual real life violence. So you, you stepped into something that I actually wanted to talk about with Slayer. And I think this relates to just all the stuff that we're interested in or drawn to. Um, and like I said, it's more popular now, but still when you really, when you really get down to it, it's not, it's not truly mass media, mainstream, whatever, like, you know, Slayer can play to 2000 people in Indianapolis, but that's a very small crowd in a metro area of like 1.2 million. Um, what is it, and we're not going to answer this, but I want to raise a question. What is it about our brains and the brains of people who are like us that we hear Slayer for the first time and instead of being repelled, we're into it? It's something that, you know, as most of us who are into it, like within our families even, it's not something that anyone else can, like, and it's it's to the extent that the the older I get and the, the more I realize like people literally can't hear it. Like it's, it, it's like a black box of noise to them. They can't tell what's going on. They can't appreciate any part of it. They can't, they can't understand it. It's just static to them. Whereas we very distinctly hear all the different moving pieces of it and appreciate different aspects of it. And I don't know why that is like my, my dad always jokingly called it kill your mama music because it's just, it's just no, it's static to him and he can't, he can't hear anything that sounds like music. Whereas the, I don't know, from like my early teens, it was just a steady progression of like going deeper and deeper down that because it's like I hear Alice in Chains, I hear Anthrax, I hear Metallica, I hear, I hear, and then, you know, by the time I'm in my mid teens, I think that a, I think that I'm trying to think of a, you know, a band like Grade in the '90s. I think of as like easy listening, and then I have it on when other people are there and like, why is this guy screaming? I'm like, no, this is like melodic. Like, no, he's screaming. Okay. Why, Ryan? Why? Why? Um, yeah, and it is. It, it's interesting. Also, you know, there's some people where their ear isn't even in tune to, you know, they have a tough time identifying in a rock song, what's the bass and what's the drums and what's the, and even, you know, the different symbols or the different kinds of drums. And I don't know if some of that is nature or nurture. I think it's both. There's, there's gotta be some auditory thing happening in different brains because yeah, like it, it blows my mind when I like point something out and be like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know, I'll like try to describe a certain guitar line or like a flourish or an overdub or something, and they're like, "I, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about." It's like, okay, like yeah. they they hear the whole, they see the whole, they can't they can't pull it apart in their heads. Uh, you could certainly argue repressed emotions and anger and angst and depression and existential questions and all of this sort of stuff. I think that all plays a role into what 
drew us to certain things. I think there's a certain alienation and disaffection as cliche as that sounds. Uh, but when you're, when you feel outside of the mainstream culture, uh, you know, and growing up sort of when we did and where we did anything that offers this hidden parallel universe and secret knowledge, as you aptly call it, uh, was attractive to us. And I think speaking for myself anyway, when I, when I first heard Megadeth, which was the first extreme metal band I was exposed to, part of the lightning bolt moment was the understanding that it was representative of, that it was the tip of the iceberg of something much bigger. That I knew, I knew this was special. I knew that it moved me. I knew that it made me feel a certain way. Uh, but I also knew that it represented some bigger quote unquote thing that I had yet to experience and had a lot to explore within. And and I think that that's still, you know, that's continued into adulthood. I'm a, maybe it's my obsessive compulsive personality, but I'm a, I'm one of those people that discovers something and then goes full bore into it, learns everything about it that I possibly can, gets deeply immersed. And then, you know, maybe after a couple of years, it's, it's on to another thing. And those, yeah. and those things stay with me. Um, you know, it's not that I'm just exchanging one for another, but yeah, I'm not much of a casual fan of many things. <laughs> <laughs> Would it be fair to say that in the, I guess in your childhood, early teens, that sort of dark horror movies, hammer horror stuff, comics with dark themes and metal formed like the three legs of your interests, your perception of yourself, your perception of your place in the world. Definitely. Stayed that, stayed that way for since then. Definitely. I mean, and it's interesting because, uh, you know, I have a, a really close friend of mine here in California, Brian Balchak, um, who's one of the owners of movie web and we've worked together on a bunch of stuff. And, and he's an unabashed horror guy. He owns a Freddy Krueger pinball machine, you know, every anything Freddy that you've been aware of me doing here in California in the last couple of years, it's usually 99 times out of 100, it's him and I going together. And he often teases me because I'm kind of a false, I'm almost a horror poser to him because there's a lot of <laughs> more recent horror that I haven't seen and I'm not that interested in. But, you know, middle school, high school, I was reading Fangoria every month. Dude, I forgot Fangoria existed. <laughs> well, there you go. It's back now, by the way. And this is and this is what I mean. I'm only a poser relative to somebody like Brian. <laughs> relative to the rest of the world, the fact that I've been to like three horror conventions in the last year makes me like a horror fan. Yeah. You know? But yeah, and I, you know, I had some like-minded friends, which if we really broke it down, you know, all had some sort of fucked up childhood story happening. But I had my four or five friends through middle school and high school where we all got into metal together. We all got into punk together. Uh, most of us got into hardcore eventually together, and we were all into horror films. And we had we had the one friend whose dad would rent rated R movies for us, so we would slumber party at his house in sixth and seventh grade, and you know watch every imaginable horror film at the video store, and just you know literally renting as many as they would let you rent in one sitting. And having a party with pizza and soda and endless horror films. With both horror and movies and science fiction and music, 
I had that journalist bug in so much as I wanted to investigate and dig around. And of course there was no internet, there was no Wikipedia. So, you know, I've, I have a, <laughs> I have a vivid memory of telling my best friend at the time when I was a kid, uh, Gian Bentley of broad ripple fame, uh, telling Gian that there was a nightmare on Elm street sequel in production and that it was called a nightmare on Elm street Two: Freddy's revenge and getting into an argument, you know, fifth or sixth grade, because he just flat out didn't believe me. He was like, There's, <laughs> it's not called Freddy's Revenge. Like, it sounded like a title that someone would make up. And uh, and at the time, even, this was early enough that he was like, his name's Fred Krueger. He's not Freddy. <laughs> and, uh, and I had this sort of secret knowledge because I devoured magazines relentlessly. Um, and that lasted into... I mean, early to mid twenties, I used to still just go and sit at an awesome Sunday afternoon to me was going to a bookstore and grabbing a bunch of magazines off the rack and sitting down and reading everything, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, having a similar conversation, walking home from karma records with my friend, Dave Rogers, having just purchased Slayer South of heaven on street date and telling him during our 45 minute walk back to his apartment yeah, the first song on here is going to be really slow. And he's just like, no way. There are no slow Slayer songs. And I was like, <laughs> no, Carrie King was saying that, like, you know, Rain and Blood was the pinnacle of speed metal and, and everyone just is going to expect it to get faster and faster and they want to throw everyone for a loop and open the new record with a slow song. And I only, I only knew this shit because I read about it. <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't know anyone else who was reading about it, so it made me this, like, weird oracle in those moments. Um, and, and oftentimes encountering disbelief. If only they knew they just had to go sit in a Kroger and read metal hammer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The, the Kerrang imports that were like $9 an issue. So I would just read them as long <laughs> as they would let me get away with not buying it. And in a weird, like a four size or whatever the hell they print on. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> totally. Um, so yeah. And so that, yeah, that goes back to the horror thing, but yeah, to answer your question, certainly all that stuff. Uh, we're, we're the kind of primary, you know, comic books, horror. And yeah, as I got into metal and I, I would, I would say metal punk and hardcore, even pretty consistently, I was always drawn to that darker, more sort of theatrical stuff. You know, I, I loved King Diamond and I think that was a, a convergence of, of horror and, and that sort of thing. And, and also, you know, full disclosure as a young teenager, still had that sort of superstitious fear of something like King Diamond. Like, you know, my friends and I would stay up watching Headbangers Ball waiting for the couple of thrash videos, and I would be excited when a King Diamond video would come on, uh, but also still sort of weirdly scared. But at that age where you don't want to admit that you're scared, but it was still sort of scary because uh, it was just something, you know, otherworldly and, and devilish about something like Merciful Fate that you didn't quite get from you know, really any, even Slayer because Slayer to me still seemed like California dudes that, you know, went surfing on the weekends or something and just happened to write about all this stuff. Whereas something like King Diamond, which turned out to be 100% true. <laughs> right. Whereas, you know, yeah, somebody, something like Bathory to me was just, there was so much mystique and it was so otherworldly. And I knew that it was just some dude, but you see these grainy photos of Corthon or whatever, and it just still had an eeriness to it that, uh, that I still love and that I still appreciate about, uh, you know, 
Dark Throne or any number of bands, no matter how much they pull back the curtain on their mystique, <laughs> there's you can still look at the cover of Transylvanian Hunger and be like, this is fucking weird and spooky and awesome. Yeah, and there's there's something about artists that commit like method style. Yeah, you know, King Diamond doesn't doesn't do appearances when he's out of character to mind, you know, like, or like there's the dudes in Slayer look like the dudes in Slayer all the time. Yeah. But when you, when you have a stage presence and you have, everything's a production, there's a level of commitment that whether, the, whether they're a true believer or not, it, it leads you to believe that they're on some different shit. Yeah. And, and, and not for nothing. That was of course, part of the appeal of, the thrash bands was that they looked like the audience and they just, they got on stage and what they were wearing the day before and that sort of thing. And that's part of its charm and, and what made it uh, so much more accessible and, and authentic than the hair metal stuff that was happening at the time. But, you know, yeah, even in punk though, I was drawn more, you know, uh, the image and the look of, of stuff like the damned and, uh, you know, any, anything that just had that, that edge towards the overall presentation that everything was kind of you loved Adam Ant early on didn't you uh, yeah 100% and that was that was from my older brother and that Adam Ant and Billy Idol were the first rock stars that I ever loved as I mean really young elementary school and yeah Adam Ant was nothing if not the most theatrical and you know drawing from all sorts of disparate influences and putting it together into his own thing, which is something that I've continued to appreciate and love going forward. You know, when it's like, Oh, typo negative is black Sabbath plus the Beatles plus, well, you know, it's, there's something magical about combining a few great things and putting it through your own life experience that then creates something new that I always respond to. And that's the same with films. You know, there's a lot of great movies where it's like, well, this is, you know, it's a Western with a little bit of detective story with some noir and yeah. And that, and that's, yeah. And that's gone into movies too, not just horror movies, but sort of darker films, anything to do with the supernatural. Um, I was big into and, and yeah. And that's, like I said, you know, the, the eternal Freddy versus Jason argument years before we got the film or I went, <laughs> went and visited the set as a reporter for MTV of the Freddy versus Jason movie. Um, I was always, pro Freddy. I actually dressed up as Freddy for Halloween in sixth grade before you could buy Freddy costumes. <laughs> Couldn't find a red and green sweater anywhere. Settled for something that was maybe red and brown. Um, you know, a thrift store fedora, uh, some really bad stage makeup. And then my brother meticulously constructed a um, Freddy glove out of like some combination of cardboard and tape. And I mean, it was really intricate and complicated and sort of functioned. Um, but yeah, it was well before you could just go buy a, a Freddy glove or a Freddy mask at spirit Halloween. <laughs> so on the subject of taking a bunch of influences, and I want to come back to Freddy Krueger cause he's like been one of your totems for as long as I've known you. Totally. Uh, <clears throat> speaking of, of taking all these different influences and making something totally new, let's talk about misfits, Sam Hain, which is hilarious because it's probably 
that word is now probably pronounced more that way than the way it actually is supposed to be pronounced. Yeah. But Sam Hain and then being a Dan fan. Well, first of all, with everything I just described, it sort of, you know, it makes sense that when I stumbled across the Misfits that it would connect with me. First Danzig album came out in 88. So I discovered the Misfits and Sam Hain. I suppose it would have been, I didn't really understand this at the time, but it would have been as Sam Hain was winding down and transitioning into becoming Danzig. And I remember Danzig playing the Arlington Theater, touring that first album, and not being able to go because I wasn't allowed to go to shows on school nights. <laughs> but uh, I, I discovered the Misfits initially via my friend Alex Givens, who, uh, rest in peace, who was a year younger than me and was part of my group of friends in elementary school. And as early as fourth and fifth grade had a devil lock would dye his hair blue. We're talking 1984, 1985, Indiana wore a leather jacket with the crimson ghost skull painted on the back. And he was my introduction to a lot of punk stuff and, and the misfits in particular. And then around the time, you know, 86, 87, when I discovered Megadeth, which led me to Metallica, Metallica constantly wearing Misfits shirts and Sam Hain shirts, and of course covering the Misfits on the Garage Days EP, that uh, really brought it home for me. And the Misfits offered uh, some combination of a lot of things that I loved. It was aggressive and fast, like like metal music. It was catchy and melodic, like you know, the popular sort of, um, you know, the new wave and Adamant and generation X and that sort of stuff that I initially loved the cure. And it had all the image stuff that I liked in a way that was kind of reappropriating a lot of at the time, very much forgotten sort of traditional horror stuff, whether it was, I mean, their logo was from famous monsters, of Filmland magazine. And if you didn't know what that magazine was, you would never make that connection or, the Crimson Ghost, which was, you know, lifted from an old movie serial. And uh, the kind of thing that I think if you do it now, it feels a lot different. Whereas at the time, you're talking about like the, almost these archaeological excavations that Glenn Danzig was doing of finding the stuff and cutting it up and pasting it and modifying it and, and repurposing it for this brand that he was building. Um, it was all super exciting. And it was also you know, one of those cool things about being a Misfits and Sam Hain fan in the mid eighties was that, um, they weren't that ubiquitous and they weren't that popular. And and the Misfits had gone away before they were really even popular in the punk scene. They were always a little black sheepish. They were always misunderstood. They were always too cartoony or too metal, um, or, or too whatever for a lot of the scene that they were in. And, even when the first Danzig record came out um, and the second Danzig record, <laughs> it was still like an underground, you know, it was part of like our thing and our culture or whatever. And it really wasn't until the early nineties when mother was released as a single the second time and it hit on MTV with that live version from the thrall EP that, you know, Danzig became like a, a household name for a minute there in, in rock circles. And, and, and then, you know, and as we're talking about this, it was just a couple of weeks ago that the quote unquote original misfits with Glenn Danzig and Jerry only and Jerry only's brother Doyle, who was of course in the misfits towards the end of their, their time in the eighties. Um, they just sold out Madison square garden 
and The Damned was one of their opening acts. And, uh, you know, they've been doing this uh, reunion circuit now for, for the last two or three years, playing huge venues. And, you know, of course, the band has been influential in so many ways, and we could do a whole separate podcast about all the shenanigans of the uh, the various incarnations and resurrections and things like that that have happened. But bring us all the way back to your initial question about being a Dan fan, uh, which was a phrase I believe I learned from Dwid. He refers to both of us as Dan fans. Um, there's, how do I put this? There's something about him and that whole cast of characters that have been associated with him over the years. I would say with, almost without exception, uh, you know, Erie Vaughn is probably the only person who was part of that circle that you can take 101% seriously. The rest of them you can't. <laughs> Which is ironic because his name is Erie Vaughn. <laughs> right, right. Again, I realize I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in my own bubble. But, <laughs> you know, but all, there's something about all of those characters that is, you know, their flaws are, are for the most part endearing. And it makes the fandom sort of like it's part of the experience for me. It's sort of entertaining to to watch the things that those various characters get up to. And I think what makes one as a fan able to appreciate and enjoy the dumb things they might say once in a while or the subpar product that they might be hawking once in a while is that they did something so perfect and so magical and so incredible so many times in Danzig's case, you know, three bands in a row, like most people don't get one great band. Uh, he has three great bands that were each influential in different scenes in different ways while somehow, uh, sharing some commonalities and even, you know, Sam Hain doing misfit songs and Danzig doing Sam Hain songs. <laughs> and yet three very different bands, you know, it, because it, it's like you've, they reached the top of that mountain. So they can kind of fuck around <laughs> with our fandom, you know, they have license to do that, you know, to fail and make mistakes and do dumb things. Well, yeah. And it was as much as, as much as Danzig curated everything from, the early days of the misfits as much as it was a planned performance it also a lot of it was like id you know like a lot of it was accidental and just making shit up as they went yes so when that's your genius you're gonna make dumb shit too <laughs> yeah and you're also gonna make dumb shit too if you and not to overanalyze it and maybe this isn't the case for danzig across the board but i think with a lot of great artists if you yourself sort of misunderstand what's cool about you <laughs> um that can create problems because then you end up focusing on uh, the wrong things and neglecting the right things yeah and that's that's probably a separate entire episode about the possible benefits of not being self-aware all the time yes and, and then also the you know, you, you wonder the tension of different creative partnerships. And, you know, here's a, here's a great kind of sideways example. So I don't know if you watched the show Mayans on FX. Uh, I have not seen it yet. So 
it's a you know a spinoff from Sons of Anarchy and takes place in that same shared universe, a concept that people are accustomed to now. And it was you know Sons of Anarchy was created by Kurt Sutter, this guy who worked on the Shield and is you know this notorious showrunner who's rough around the edges and and tattooed and you know uh, married to Katie Seagal of Married with Children fame, and uh, you know all around awesome, interesting character. He co-created uh mayans with someone from the hardcore scene incidentally um and the reason why i bring this up is very recently he was just fired by fx um a couple weeks ago like super recently uh, just as i think the season finale of season two of mayans airs next week as we're taping this so um very recent news and you know he says that he ruffled feathers and that they censored him and that he had taken a big step back this season and wasn't as involved as he had been in the first season and that since disney purchased fox and that whole acquisition that he quote-unquote ruffled mouse feather mouse ears over there and um all of which especially to guys like you and i and these lone wolves that go with these creative visions into corporate culture it all sounds believable and relatable and like things that at most points in my life I would have just read and taken at face value and been like, yeah, fuck the man and they're fucking with Kurt. But as a more sort of well-rounded adult, I suppose, prior to being aware of any of this and prior to him being fired, I had noticed a marked improvement in quality of Mayan season two versus season one. And that's not in and of itself unusual. A lot of times, shows kind of find their sea legs and you know they get i mean i think sons of anarchy season two was better than season one but it, it it's felt different though and it's felt a lot better and in some ways it's slow burning storylines and characters paying off and that sort of thing but what it raised the question for me though was man what degree of push and pull and interference and collaboration and compromise has made things great that we don't even realize, you know, maybe some of these great visionary directors, their director's cut would have been dog shit. <laughs> maybe some of the suits and committees and producers and lead actors and whoever that fucked with their vision, you know, that it all actually ended up for the better. And that's just something as a DIY punk person, uh, had never really considered until very recently. <laughs> and, and it, yeah. it makes me wonder the same thing about Danzig, you know, it's like, why are, why is the artwork for the first four Danzig albums so incredible and the artwork for every Danzig album since terrible? Um, was that, <laughs> were there other people in play? Were those compromises? Was he not that psyched on those? And now that he gets to do exactly what he wants, but then he was doing exactly what he wanted with the misfits and Sam Hain and all of that stuff looks awesome. So yeah, those are things I, I wonder about more lately than I ever would have before. Let's get back to Fred Krueger. Uh, Fred Krueger, mom. Fred <laughs> Krueger. First of all, give as as concise as you can a summary of Fred's mythology. Uh, I think we're far enough away from Nightmare on Elm Street being a huge cultural force that there's going to be a lot of people who don't remember or just aren't haven't seen a Nightmare on Elm Street yeah, movie. You're probably right. So. Tell me about Fred and what about that character spoke to you? So as concisely as possible, because we could do hours and hours on 
A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, Wes Craven was a DIY, sort of very punk rock, visionary horror film director who had made The Hills Have Eyes and Last House on the Left, which were in that category of visceral, realistic, original Chainsaw Massacre style, low budget, uh, gnarly, ultra violent, <laughs> reactionary horror films. And what was exciting about his masterpiece, A Nightmare on Elm Street, is that it took the slasher genre that had really kind of, you know, kickstarted with Halloween, another low budget, amazing film made over like two weeks in Pasadena. Uh, that was, that's really a guy in a mask that doesn't say anything that's killing teenagers with a knife and creating a lot of, uh, what we recognize as tropes of those films. What was different about Nightmare on Elm Street was the, the setup is that the villain haunts you in your dreams and that the violence he inflicts on you while you're asleep affects you in the real world. So if you trip and fall and cut your hand on a piece of broken glass in the dream while Freddy's chasing you, you're going to wake up with a wound on your hand from broken glass. And, uh, you know, and if, if you die in the dream, you're going to die in real life. And the, the mythos is basically um, all the teenagers – uh, on Elm Street, uh, in this in this town that could be anywhere USA, it's very suburban and idyllic. Uh, the teenagers are are dying in their sleep, basically one by one. And what's revealed as you get through the first movie is that uh, years before, there was a child murderer in the neighborhood who killed a lot of the young children of Elm Street and went through a big public trial and was ultimately released on a technicality. So the parents of Elm Street banded together and, you know, found this guy, Fred Krueger, in the boiler room where he was hiding out and had taken a lot of his victims and set the place on fire with him inside. So he was burned to death and died, and that was that. And then the, the premise of this movie is that now years later, the surviving kids who are teenagers and this and that are paying for the sins of their parents of their vigilante justice of burning this child murderer alive that Freddie has now somehow supernaturally come back to kill off the remaining children of Elm street in their dreams. And you know, there's a number of things. Oh, and, and first of all, it, it spawned a whole franchise and there's multiple sequels. There was a TV series at one point, there was a Freddie versus Jason team up movie and on and on and on. And Freddie became eventually. And for a time, this pop culture cartoony sort of character who would, you know, show, he would host things on MTV and, um, you know, turned up in music videos and made public appearances and uh, became much more wisecracking and, and silly, which is a whole other thing and can be appreciated in a whole different way, but just keeping the conversation right now to just the first film, which Wes Craven, who wrote and directed it envisioned as a self-contained story. It wasn't written with the intention of, of, of building uh, a franchise, uh, let alone building a studio, by the way, because that studio new line that went on to make the Lord of the Rings films, you know, for years has been referred to as the house that Freddie built because Elm street was the, first big success for what was a uh, sky Bob Shea, his film studio, which was at the time very, very minor. Uh, huh. But the, 
having the self-contained story really opened up the opportunity for a lot of themes because on the one hand you got you know horny teenagers being killed by a slasher type character which was that's its own type of genre then you have this whole supernatural element and this whole uh dreams thing which is a whole other thing and then you also have you know ultimately freddy is defeated at the end of the film spoiler alert by the quote-unquote final girl, the the main teenager's um, decision to stop believing in him. Uh, she just, just basically to, to really boil it down, she says, you know, that she doesn't believe in him anymore and that robs him of his power to do harm and he evaporates. Uh, now, the studio, of course, forced Wes Craven to shoot an ending that undoes all of that and brings Freddy back and opened it up for sequels. But, you know, that ending aside, um, it is a really cool self-contained story that has a lot to say about a lot of things. Um, Freddy as, you know, much like Jason, my favorite podcast, How Did This Get Made? They did an episode on Jason X, which I actually attended the live taping of. And one of the things that Jason Mansouk is one of the hosts of the shows and one of my absolute favorite comedians realized as they were talking about the movie is he was like wait a minute because he's not a horror guy he was like wait jason's like the protagonist of these movies like we're supposed to be rooting for jason like that seems fucked up but uh, he's right and that's sort of what those films eventually became and very much so in freddie's case you know going to see those movies became like what new interesting creative funny ways will Freddy kill teenagers in this movie and what hilarious things will he say while he's doing it? Well, yeah, because everyone else is disposable except for them. Yeah, and that's not how the first movie was. You know, he was very much the villain to be defeated and you were supposed to be rooting for for the teenagers. And, you know, he became sort of this cult, almost sort of folk hero, which is quote-unquote problematic in many ways because he was a child murderer. <laughs> That was like the whole, you know, that's his origin story. And that's still what he's basically set out to do. So, yeah. Yeah. The, the 20 teens are such a terrible time, but in the eighties we made movies glorifying child murders. Yeah. The thing that's changed is that it was the religious right who was trying to shut that stuff down in police art. And now it's, um, super liberal progressives who are shutting that stuff down and policing it. So it's kind of, you know, the Ouroboros is, is really a come full circle eating its tail uh, where, you know, the movie Silent Night, Deadly Night, which was a 80s thrasher film, which incidentally opened, I learned this recently, opened the same time as the original Elm Street and initially was doing better and then was banned from theaters by the religious right because the the gimmick of that movie is that the slasher uh, dressed up like Santa Claus and came down the chimney at Christmas time and murdered people with an axe. <laughs> that film had like an anniversary screening in Portland a couple years ago. And a friend of mine who lives there, who's a Hoosier, told me that liberals and progressives in Portland protested the anniversary screening of Silent Night, Deadly Night because of its misogyny and violence against women and, you know, so on, so on and so on and so on. So basically it's like, yeah, just like the Christian right of the 80s. <laughs> Except it's well, it's the, funny uh, because yeah. back then the the objections to these movies, it's the objectors have changed, but also the objections have changed. You know, like a lot of the stuff that people have an issue with now, I think rightly so, was not even part of the story 
back then. You know, like the I think the the surface level objection of having Santa Claus kill people, like that that's a very rudimentary knee jerk, like that's bad, the kids will become Satanists if they do that. But the slasher movie genre and again, that's an entirely different series of podcasts. There's a lot of fucked up subtext in slasher movies. For sure. I mean, the, the most basic of which being that in a lot of those movies, the teenagers are being punished for having sex <laughs> or doing drugs. Uh, you know, because there's a lot of those films where people have gone back and analyzed them and said, okay, everyone who's murdered by the slasher in this film is someone who has premarital sex or gets drunk or does drugs and the final yeah, girl the who survives is the, the virgin. Yeah. And, you know, I would say that Elm Street avoided a lot of that. And the, you know, Nancy, who's the hero of that film and the one we identify with and root for, is a very strong female character, which I think for that time in the mid 80s in a horror film was uh, very uh, progressive in a sense. And yeah, in my argument, I don't think that you're wrong that, you know, the people who are objecting have changed, but what they're objecting to has also changed. But I think there's some nuance to that, what they're objecting to part where there's more overlap than we might realize on the surface. Because I think the the base visceral reaction that the religious right was having to this stuff in the 80s was that people watching and enjoying human beings being butchered and murdered on screen in front of them is bad. And I feel like that's the same place that people are reacting from now on the left, but just put through a different lens of different reasons why it's problematic and yeah. and my sort of overarching thing is it's art <laughs> and <laughs> we sh you know we should be less worried about uh, the discussion is great and we should have the discussion on all sides but preventing something from existing is always going to be the wrong way to go uh with art you know let the worst of art be made and let the smartest of critics condemn and that's what uh, free society and free expression is all about. Can I add one nugget about Silent Night, Deadly Night? Please. The story involves uh, – the backstory involves abuse in a Catholic orphanage. Yep. <laughs> so <laughs> that is that – Very is woke by 2019. Time, yeah. Exactly. Yep. Before it's time, cultural critique. Um, yep. And uh, that's you know. uh, Saint Sinead O'Connor ripping up the Pope's picture on Saturday Night Live. So I was is. just going to say that that's that's cancel culture. Fight the real enemy. Yeah, she, uh, she well, she tried to cancel the Pope and she got canceled instead. Yeah. My fascination with Nightmare on Elm Street, aside from it just being a very well you know, from a narrative perspective and storytelling, it being very well put together and it having some really cool performances. And it's also the breakthrough debut of a young teenage actor named Johnny Depp, uh, which is more of a footnote at this. And he, I think he's canceled and problematic anyway. But uh, <laughs> I, I think my main attraction to it is this mystery of dreams and the lack of consensus and con or conclusions about what dreams are, why we have them, what they mean, uh, you know, and various interpretations from the most esoteric of, you know, it's your astral projection traveling other dimensions uh, to it's just your mind keeping itself busy, solving your day's problems in some subconscious way while you're resting. Uh, 
and everything in between, um, it made it really ripe fodder and a great landscape for a horror film because there's so much mystery to it. Uh, you know, I was also into movies like Flatliners and stuff like that that dealt with life after death and um, certainly Jacob's Ladder like was really fascinating to me and this stuff that has to do with kind of your your self-contained point of view of, of reality and how you interpret it and all that sort of thing. You know, it made it, um, you know, as you get older and more experienced and all that sort of thing, or as you've seen more and more horror movies, even when you're younger, the guy in the mask with the butcher knife becomes less frightening and more, more easy to sort of categorize and compartmentalize and put away. And, uh, you know, I, I would be much more afraid walking alone at night and three in the morning of some sort of supernatural eeriness than someone, you know, jumping out of the bushes in a Michael Myers mask. And, you know, there's a part of that too, is that I feel like the type of evil and the type of, uh, power that evil had in something like the Omen films in something like a nightmare on Elm street. And part of what made a lot of the Japanese horror stuff really cool, like the grudge and, and some of that stuff is that it's unconquerable. There's no, I mean, I think those move those movies work best when they have some sort of rules, but even, but within those rules still, it's just the challenge of defeating that evil and surviving that evil is so much greater than, a slasher that you can shoot in the face or outrun or, you know, otherwise evade in some natural, explainable, logical human way. So you talked about how Freddy was never intended to be the folk hero, the protagonist, etc. Yet he's the character that you have such an affinity for yeah now you know and i think that that's from some of that's nostalgia and some of that is is him as the because he's he was really more plot device than character in the first film and when wes craven came back you know they made the second one independently of wes craven and that's a whole other can of worms the second one uh he came back for the third and left partway through the production, didn't end up directing it. They used a bunch of his story elements and part of his script, but they also rewrote a lot. But he came, but what was interesting about him coming back for the third is that he had a new idea again. It wasn't just like Freddy's back and he's killing more teenagers on Elm Street. This one was, um, what if, you know, the whole Dream Warriors notion was, you know, now we have these Elm Street kids who have survived Freddy who are locked up in an insane asylum and, you know, and that gives you all sorts of roads to go down in terms of allegory and stuff like that for um, teenagers and depression and suicide and all sorts of stuff that it got into. Um, but basically these kids are all being terrorized by Freddie and they're in this asylum and uh, Nancy from the first film who now, who is now an adult doctor uh, comes in to counsel them. And, and the, the new idea was what if, these kids learned how to fight back against Freddy in their dreams. And it also expanded the mythology where it went deeper into Freddy's origin and um, pulled in even more religious elements. And it was interesting. And, and, and 
again, once Wes Craven was gone, you know, Rennie Harlan comes in for the fourth one and Rennie Harlan was really the guy, you know, there were quips in dream warriors, but it was really the Rennie Harlan movie Elm street four that made Freddie slapstick. Um, you know, that's the movie, you know, the gif or the meme that you've probably seen out there where he's putting, he's on the beach, putting on sunglasses. That's from Elm street four. And, you know, the Rennie Harlan story and movie and, and everything surrounding it is interesting and a curiosity in and of itself. And I appreciate it in a certain way, but it definitely took that franchise in the direction that's more familiar to people of, of Freddie as uh, as joking anti-hero. And, you know, and, and part of, yeah, pinball Freddie and part, and part of the, the deal with four also was that they didn't really have a working shooting script. What they had was, a series of ideas for elaborate dream sequences and, and deaths. So they literally were just like, okay, we want, you know, a person. They to were shooting final destination. <laughs> yeah. It was like, they, they knew the four or five different ways they wanted Freddie to kill four or five different teenagers. And then they stitched together a movie from those set pieces. And, uh, obviously the movie really suffers for it. And then the, it just kind of continued down that way. I think I've seen Robert England who plays Freddy Krueger, uh, describe Freddy in those later movies as a Looney Tunes type character. And yeah, it's like, you know, I think at one point he might even have like a giant mallet, <laughs> like a wily e. coyote, you know? And, and yeah, there's definitely some wacky stuff that happens. I mean, there's a whole power glove scene where he, <laughs> he kills someone as video game Freddy in like an eight bit Nintendo video game. Uh, and you know, endlessly memeable stuff. You know, Alice Cooper shows up as his stepfather, in flashbacks in Freddy's Dead. Uh, Roseanne and Tom Arnold are in Freddy's Dead. Um, yeah, it just, you know, there's different facets of it that are... I still find Roseanne terrifying. Very, just, I mean, and Tom, for that matter, too, is also frightening. <laughs> um, you know, there are a lot of things that are kind of emblematic of of its time period that makes makes me appreciate that. But, yeah, I guess for me personally, there's... A Nightmare on Elm Street, the perfect horror film uh, that exists, you know, in this, like, safe space of its own. You know, it's like in a, it's like a shipwreck in a bottle sort of thing. Like, uh, you know, I can, I can separate it from the whole rest of the thing. And then there's Freddy Krueger, the horror icon, uh, you know, rooting for him to dismember people in new and creative and funny ways. And, uh, you know, I appreciate both, I guess, and, and can, but can separate both, if that answers your question in any weird way. I think the final question of what will be an unfinished episode that we probably revisit the themes of again in the future is what is it about this stuff in general that appeals to us? Why do we keep coming back to it over and over again? why do I say I really need to not let so much negativity into my life? And then I sit down and watch a Norwegian TV show about a serial murderer, or we watch the new slasher movie or listen to the new thrash the thrash record or whatever. Like why, why do we keep returning to it when it's, supposedly not what we want. I think part of the argument for that in my mind is that 
it's an opportunity for us to exercise, and I mean that in the exorcism way, those feelings and emotions in a safe and controlled manner. You know, not unlike why I enjoy kickboxing, you know, more than getting into street fights or punching the wall. <laughs> I, I've always sort of interpreted it that way and that there's, you know, for all the arguments in the 80s that heavy metal was going to lead people to darkness and suicide and murder, my argument was always that it was leading so many kids away from those things by giving them an outlet to wrestle with that subject matter and put it aside and, and find a home for it. And that dismissing all that stuff and ignoring it and sweeping it under the rug is actually what makes it worse. Not uh, finding a way to grapple with it in, in art. I think that that's a good answer. I've been struggling with intrusive thoughts for a long time, never quite realized what they were until mm -hmm. someone told me what they were. And I spend a lot of time thinking about them. And in a lot of ways, it's, I guess I've come to understand my interest in the dark broadly, <laughs> like just that other half of the day, the human spirit, the seasons of life, uh, it's, it's really about what you said in the beginning. It's facing the stuff that bothers me that I, I never can quite be okay with the existence of um, and just spending time with it and so it has less power over me, so it, it creates less anxiety. Um, it's probably strange. It definitely has a different effect on me now than it used to, but... Um, you know, there's a soothing effect to that, some of that stuff now. Now, having said that, there's certain things that I can't consume in media without being disturbed by them, and I think that's healthy. But, um, but yeah, I, I guess that's why I like to spend time with boogeymen. Well, you know, to your point, I used to religiously watch, you know, I've consumed every episode of every Law & Order variation at some point in my life. And after becoming a parent, um, I just couldn't watch uh, SVU anymore uh, due to the nature of those crimes that they explore in those episodes. And I used to yeah. love that show and I used to love it for the characters and, you know, so on and so forth. And I don't begrudge it and I don't want it banned, but there are certain things, you know, much like the torture porn genre, uh, you know, hostile and those kind of movies. Um, they just aren't for me. I'm just not uh, interested in it. And uh, I don't find it that imaginative. Uh, the Purge, I've never seen a Purge movie. Uh, but I understand and appreciate, you know, why it exists and that certain people, that's their bag. And it would be hypocritical of me to, you know, it's kind of like Anthony Jeselnik is my favorite current comic. And he occasionally veers into matter, subject matter that makes me uncomfortable. And I think, well, I can't laugh at, the nine out of 10 things that he says that would offend nine other people and then be offended by the one thing that hits home with me. Um, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I'm aware of that sort of broader view of just kind of accepting it all and, and letting it all be. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you in that there are things that I've 
I've learned over the years that just aren't for me for whatever reason. Yeah. Breaking bad and sons of anarchy, uh, stopped being part of my media diet, um, for a couple of years after having kids and I slowly came back to some things, but yeah, I still, there's a sympathetic nerve response that I didn't have before I was a dad that I have now to certain things. I don't know if you've experienced this, but, um, when my kids hurt themselves or they're about to hurt themselves, I get a spasm in my lower back. Like if I think my daughter's about to trip on concrete, I'll feel this like twinge, like some, like I've got like literally a nerve twinge in my back. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's like it's an anticipation or fear or what, but that's, I have, I have a, an emotional sympathetic nerve response as well. Now that I never had before. That's, fascinating i don't have that but it makes makes perfect sense um yeah and i have the same thing where you know but it also i'm reminded of as we're talking about our how our relationship once we became parents changed to certain media i remember after 9 11 i mean not only were people predicting the death of comedy and the death of irony and all of that but i remember and i don't say this to make fun of him i remember bruce willis saying that he wasn't going to make any more diehard movies and obviously he's made a bunch since then and a bunch of similar stuff. Um, and when uh, one of the more recent of the numerous mass shootings that have happened in the last few years, when one of those happened, you know, Rob Flynn of the band Machine Head uh, was saying he didn't think he was going to perform, you know, their most widely recognized song amongst their fans that says, let freedom ring with a shotgun blast as it's sing along refrain. And, you know, they're, he's on tour right now and they're playing it. Um, so I do wonder about even those sort of like, I understand Bruce Willis after nine 11 going, I don't want to make those action movies anymore. Um, but I also understand making them again. So <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough yeah. One. Well, and it's, I think the approach I prefer is examining what these things that we make mean in new and different contexts instead of just setting them to the side and saying that's that's problematic that's too complicated for me to to talk about or to to figure out how it exists now so it's just done and then when no one's feeling sensitive about it let's bring it back out and continue to not think about the context it exists in or how the world has changed around it um and that's, I guess, that's what I, that's the type of art or especially comedy that I enjoy is probing those sensitive spots, not laugh or to punch down, but to examine what makes us uncomfortable. It, it's to spend time with the various boogeymen so that we can figure out why we're scared of them. <laughs> 